0: Again, continue to, uh, to pray for them. We continue to, uh, to to love to be a part of what God is doing in this world. Um, part of our call as a church is not only what we do in this county, in our neighborhoods, um, but God has called us uh, to be a light to the world. Uh, and one of the ways we do that is is through people like the Baxter. So thank you, and it's good to see you. Nice to meet you. Um, we are going to be in Psalm 119 this morning. So if you would turn there, there is an outline of the bulletin. If you want to follow along, and I think maybe those have been passed out. Linda walked up and down. We're, we're done. We're out. Look on with someone if you don't have one, I suppose. Psalm 119 is where we are this morning at the very beginning. Um, as m- most of you know, I spent uh, 18 years in education before I um, came here. And one of the things that you're used to in education is the a word called standards. Standards. Um, People will tell you from up on high, the state level, here are the standards that you're supposed to teach the kids and here are the standards that those students are supposed to meet. And so they, they develop this, these standards and they say we're going to give you this test and here's what we expect of your students this year. But next year we're going to change the standards, we're going to expect a little more. And the next year, we're going to expect a little more of your students. And the next year, we're going to expect a little more. And if you don't keep meeting those standards, there are going to be consequences for your school or for teachers or for the principal or lots of different things. What's interesting is, is about the time that a lot of those really heavy handed consequences get ready to start happening when a lot of schools kind of fail to meet up to those really high standards, at least in Texas, they'll decide, we need a new test. And so they'll change the acronym and we'll start over. We now have new standards, new things you're supposed to teach, new requirements. And then next year we're going to raise the standards, and the next year we're going to raise the standards, and we're going to raise... And then, about the time that people start freaking out and the kids don't start doing as well, we need a new test and it starts over again. No standards. It's a, it's a little game that we play in, in Texas with the legislature and the education agency and principals and teachers and parents and kids, and it's a fun game, unless you're the teacher or the kids, and then it's not so fun. But on that, it's great. But the question is, does does God play like that? You know, we we come to Christ and, and we start learning what what the rules are, right, and and as we get a little old, a little more mature, does, does God expect more of us? And when we get a little old, a little more mature, does He expect more of us? And when we realize that we, that we really can't meet up to the really high standards, does, does God change the rules and say, okay, let's start over? Are God's standards like education standards, at least in Texas, and probably in most places in the, in the country? Or does He do something altogether different. That's what we're going to look at this morning as we look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119, you're probably aware, the longest chapter in the Bible. If you're not sure where it is, open to the middle of your Bible, and it's probably fairly close. You can, if you're in the prophets, you've gone too far. Um, it's interesting, uh, it's, it's a bunch of stanzas that are eight verses long, and each stanza, each verse begins with a the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So verses 1 through 8 all begin with the letter Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then verses 9 through 16 all begin with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Beit. Uh, and so it's a, an acrostic poem. And the whole chapter, all 176 verses, is a, a praise to God's Word. Praise, encouragement, challenge, rebuke, reminder of how God has revealed Himself to us through His Word. As you know, last week we kind of tweaked our mission statement here. We voted and we changed it. We shortened it made it a little more easy to remember. Um, Our mission is to glorify God as Christ-centered and spiritually vibrant people of biblical integrity. And this morning we're going to look at that last part of biblical integrity because that informs what it means to be Christ-centered. That informs what it means to be spiritually vibrant. And if we're not either one of those, then we can't glorify God. So we're starting at the end and we're going to kind of work our way backwards over the next two or three weeks. So, Psalm 119 verses 1 through 8, follow along as I read and then we'll uh, talk about this together. Um, As I read, I want you to look for four things. Uh, Number one, what is the standard that God sets? What is the command that He gives? What is our response to that? And then what should our commitment be? The standard, the command, the response, and the commitment. The psalmist writes, How blessed are those who live lives of integrity, who walk in the law of Yahweh. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies with all their heart. They seek Him. Also, they do not practice injustice. In His way they walk. You command your instructions to be kept carefully. Oh, that my ways would be steadfast to keep your statutes. Then I will not be ashamed and look into your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn of your righteous judgments. Your statutes I will keep. Do not forsake me utterly. Let's pray. Fathers, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts, our minds, and ultimately, God, our wills, that we may do what you ask of us. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, The standard. He begins as, in a lot of psalms, uh, Psalm 1, as we did a couple summers ago, uh, blessed is the man who, that that standard of what a blessed man is supposed to be like, and the psalmist says, who lives a life of integrity. Um, Your version might say, um, whose way is blameless. Uh, Way in the Bible is a metaphor for the path we're on, the type of life we're living. And that word blameless, um, it it incorporates the idea of of wholeness, of completeness, of of everything. And so a a good translation is who live lives of integrity. And that includes everything. It's, It's not just that, well, I'm blameless at my work, but maybe not so much as I relate to my spouse. Or I'm blameless in how I handle my money, but maybe not so much in my thought life. Or, or I'm blameless when people are watching, uh, but maybe not so much when folks aren't watching. The idea of integrity is it's, it's all of our lives are blameless. And that's, that's the standard. That's a high standard. He expounds on that. Second half of verse 1. Who walk in the law of the Lord. Um, you know, that, that standard of what integrity looks like, it's not about my opinion. It's not about society's norms and ethics and values. Those people are blessed who live lives of integrity, who walk in the law of the Lord. As they go, the law goes with them. God's Word accompanies them everywhere they go. When they get up in the morning, they greet their family. To what they do between then and when you walk out the door. To how you relate to your neighbors, your business associates, your customers, to what happens when it's after lunch in the middle of the afternoon and you're really tired and you've got things to do, and and how you deal with tiredness and frustration, anger and sorrow, and what you do when you get home. God's law follows you everywhere, but it's not really like a kind of a dog on a leash that kind of goes with me where I go, right? See, the problem is we sometimes think we're the master and we, you know, we take God along. Come on, God, let's see how this relates here. See, God is the master. His word is the one that, that really should be pulling us along on a rein, not the other way around. And so what we see at the very beginning of that is, is both sides of that coin that we talked about last week. All of our lives are important to God. It's the integrity part, all of it. And God's Word is where we find out what's important. All of our lives are important to God, and God's Word is where we find out what's important. For us to be people of biblical integrity means that we value all of what this says. And this has bearing on everything that we do from the moment we rise to the moment we go to sleep. And that's a high standard. The problem is he doesn't stop there. There's a verse 2 and a verse 3. How blessed are those who keep his testimonies with all their heart they seek him. That word keep means to, uh, to look at, to observe in order to do. And, and that word testimonies is a, is a word that, that incorporates God's covenant-keeping word. And we seek him with all of our hearts is not just enough to say, okay, um, I know it and yeah, it's important, and I'm gonna do my best. Right? We seek him, that covenant keeping God, with all our heart. Why? Well, because that's a reminder that when we're fickle, he's not. When we fail, he won't. When we're stubborn, He's even more stubborn in His love for us. And so we pursue that one. And we pursue that one through His Word as we learn about His character. But it's not just, okay, I understand what God requires of me. And I understand how I'm supposed to act and behave. But He really is concerned about how we relate to each other. Verse 3, they also do no unrighteousness or no injustice. You see, if you're characterized as blessed, then if someone looks at your life, they don't wonder. You know, I wonder how he treats his employees. I wonder how he responds to the neighbor who's unkind to him. I wonder if he ever takes advantage of people through his wealth or his power. I wonder if he ever cheats the government on his taxes. There's no injustice in his life. The blessed man. People don't look and wonder how he relates to other people. Again, the standard is is set very high for us. And then in the end of verse 3, it kind of harkens back to verse 1. In his way, they walk. It reminds me of, of right after the passage we read earlier, not too much later, in Exodus 33. Um, Moses had gone away to the mountain. He came back, the golden calf, that whole mess. <laughs> and he said, God, I need to know Your way. Because I can't lead this peep unless I know Your way. That's a rough paraphrase. Because unless I know Your way, I don't know You and if I don't know You, I can't honor You. God, I have to know Your way. In other words, God, You have to go before Me. Is that, is that Your heartbeat? That you're, you're longing for God to go before You? And if You are, we, we have a great privilege that even Moses didn't have is that we have a much fuller revelation of His character and what He's about in the world and what He's up to through His Word. So that's the standard. Verse 4, we get the command. Right? It's not just enough that, okay, I understand what God wants, but I mean, does He really expect that of me? <laughs> it seems a lot. But the psalmist writes in verse 4, you command, talking to God, you command your instructions to be kept carefully. Hebrew is one of those languages where you can incorporate the subject into the verb. And when they, when they use a pronoun, when they actually put it in there in the text like we do in English all the time, it's on purpose. It's so, that, so the psalmist is saying, just so you know this isn't what I'm saying, you, God, command your instructions to be kept carefully. He actually expects the things that He says for us to do. The standard is high. The command is is clear. And then then we get to verse 5. The response. The psalmist, it seems, is overwhelmed by what he's written. He's written it down for the nation and he realizes, oh, that my ways would be steadfast. Oh, that, that I would be firm or unmovable, that word can mean. <laughs> because he looks at his own heart and he realizes I'm, I'm not steadfast, I think. I'm not <laughs> firm. I am movable. Life comes along and I'm, I'm like just a wave of the ocean just tossed here and there. Oh, that my ways would be steadfast. The reason he wants that, there, there are two reasons that, that he'd like for that to be true. 1 in verse 6, then I will not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. Have you ever opened God's Word and it, and it spoke to you and, and pointed out your faults? You read, um, don't lie, and you think, man, I, I think I just stretched the truth a little bit the other day when I wanted someone to think more highly of me. Love your neighbor as yourself. And and you you think, was I really selfless in that that act for my neighbor? Was I I doing things for me or was I doing something for them? Just little things. We we open God's Word and, and it speaks to us and it convicts us. And the psalmist says, I want my way to be steadfast so that when I open the book, when I read God's law, I'm not ashamed. I don't hang my head and go, I wish I was different want my way to be steadfast the other side of that coin not just that when i open it i'm not ashamed look at verse 7 i will praise you with an upright heart as i learn of your righteous judgments when my way is steadfast and i open this book it's a delight i read god's word and i understand that when i read his word i learn about his character and i can praise him for who he is and what he has done for me Our response to those standards, our response to that command is to seek with all our heart to be steadfast so that when we open this book we're not ashamed, but instead we can, we can speak praises to God for who He is. Yes, that's right. This is true. This is the way I should respond. This is the way I should behave. This is the way I should act. This is how I should treat those I love and those that I don't love and those that don't love me. And we can praise God because... We see him doing that same thing towards us, loving the unlovable. Then we get to verse 8. And the psalmist does the same thing the nation of Israel does. They make a commitment. We read this morning at the beginning We will do everything that you said, God, we will obey. And not too much longer after that, Moses went up on the mountain and they said, I don't know where Moses went. Let's make a new God. And the psalmist says, your statutes I will keep. And and you wonder what goes through his mind because then this next line seems like, did he just change subjects? What? what, Do not forsake me utterly. I think he knows. God, I'm, I'm making a commitment to you, but I know I can't keep it. I know I can't. I know tomorrow I'm going to get up and something's going to happen and I'm going to speak unkindly to someone. I'm going to allow my thoughts to wonder where they shouldn't. I'm not going to be selfless like You are. God, I'm going to keep Your statutes, but don't forsake me. At the same time, it is a, a commitment which we all should make and it's a cry for grace which we all need a plea that God would would be kind, would be patient, would be long-suffering, which is what we celebrate this morning as we we come to this table. Paul writes that whenever we eat of the bread and drink of the fruit of the vine, we proclaim Christ's death until He comes. And I think he's, he's talking about two different things there. Number one, obviously, we proclaim Christ died for my sins. I'm celebrating that. I come with my brothers and sisters in Christ and I celebrate the goodness of what He's done. He died for me. He paid the penalty that I couldn't pay. The perfect man took God's wrath so that I could have His righteousness. But I think we also... Proclaim Christ's death in that when we come as a body and we partake together, we are testifying to one another not only of the sufficiency of Christ's death, but when we take the bread and, and we, together we do that, we're testifying to one another that I'm identifying with Christ's death as we read in Romans 6. I've died with Christ as we read in Colossians 3. And what that means is that means sin no longer has mastery over me. It's a public testimony of us together. An encouragement. Sin doesn't have to reign in my mortal body anymore. And we... we We make that testimony together as an encouragement to one another. I'm in the same battle you are. But by golly, I can walk out that door today and if I failed yesterday, I can remember that God's payment was sufficient and death and sin have been defeated. I can choose, like the people of Israel, like the psalmist, I will keep your statutes. And when we, together as a body, partake of the fruit of the vine, we're reminded that not only has sin been defeated, but death has been defeated. When we die with Christ, that's the hardest death we're going to face. The next one ushers us into the kingdom. That dying to self, that means I've got to put me off the throne and I sure like when I'm on the throne. But it's a testimony to one another. I have died with Christ. Death no longer has mastery over me. And so we come this morning together to celebrate together what God has done for us. Would you take just a few minutes where you are. You can kneel. You can stand. You can sit. Would you prepare your hearts as we partake together? Father, we are blessed because You are our God. We are blessed because Your Son lived a life of integrity and gave that life for our broken and sinful life. And so we rejoice in that fact. We praise You. We thank You for what You've done for us. We read these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, But the Lord Jesus, in the night in which He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me.